Welcome to New Books and Political Science. My name is Heath Brown, and today I have uh, John Alquist and Margaret Levy, who are the authors of In the Interest of Others, Organizations and Social Activism. John and Margaret, how are you two doing today? Just great. Very well, thank you. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, uh, John, maybe I can start with you. Maybe, maybe we can just learn a little bit more about who you are, uh, where you are, um, uh, sort of your, your, your background. What, a, who are you, John? <laughs> uh, so we are at the moment in Providence, Rhode Island, but I am an associate professor of political science at the University of Wisconsin, uh, in Madison. Um, and yeah, that's, I, I come from California, but I've lived in a variety of places and, uh, I do work mainly in, in political economy issues. So democratic governance and market institutions and the extent to which they, uh, can play together nicely. Great, great. And Margaret, how about yourself? I am. We're sitting in Providence because right now I'm a senior fellow at the Watson Institute at Brown University, and I'm also the Jerry Backrack Professor of Political Science at the University of Washington, where I've been for a very long time, and I'm heading back to Seattle tomorrow. And uh, most of my work is on uh, building uh, governments that are responsive and accountable and deliver to their citizens. Great, great. This is such an interesting book and so many different aspects to it. Let's, let's start at the start. Um, you begin with an intriguing concept that sets up much of the book. So, on a very basic level, what is a community of fate? Uh, what does that term mean? And how does it uh, link to what you're trying to accomplish in the book? Um, Great. Yeah, that's a, a question, uh, a term we really enjoy. And it comes from, well, for us, it came from work that Margaret and uh, David Olson, uh, a political scientist at the University of Washington for many years, came up with in a much earlier paper, uh, also about labor unions. And we've gone back and forth about how to best discuss it. And so the, the way I conceptualize it, and Margaret has a slightly different uh, description, is when people come to believe that their own interests are bound up with the interests of other human beings in some way, that what happens to them affects me, and that we, not only do we share a common interest, but we share a common fate, and that that can induce them uh, to at least consider the impact of their actions on others and, and to take action on behalf of others, perhaps. That's, that's how I think of it, too, and part of what inspired me and David to um, develop that terminology was the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, which is clearly one of the subjects of the book, borrowed from the Wobblies, took from the Wobblies, um, the slogan, an injury to one is an injury to all, and that really in, encompasses what we mean by community of faith, thinking about how the injury to somebody way out there who you don't even know um, could be felt as an injury to yourself and something on which you should act. And the, the book has, has both this um, historical component, sort of reaching back, but also uh, is, is very of today. And, and much of the book is about leadership. And, and you talk in the first chapter about leadership. You suggest that there's this four-step process through which leaders can convince members, and, and you focus mainly on, on labor unions, but convince members to think beyond their own immediate needs. I wonder if you dis- could discuss briefly some of those steps and, and what they are and, and what organizational leaders do to, um, uh, to transform the, the vision and, and to create this community of faith that you describe. Um, I think the first and most important thing that any uh, leader has to do, whether it be 
uh, of a union or of a government or of some other kind of organization is to be able to deliver to their constituents and to be credible to their constituents that they're doing all they can to deliver whatever it is that those individuals believe they need. So that that, or even to persuade them about what they can get and can't get. And that seems to me to be the prior condition for everything else we talk about. If, if the leadership is incompetent, um, it will not have any capacity to persuade members or constituents to act outside their immediate self-interest. So that's condition one. Let's yeah, I mean, I would, um, we, we kind of backed into the role of leadership uh, in, in developing the book. It wasn't a place we started looking, um, and we finally kind of settled on the idea that we couldn't write and tell the story and build the models that we wanted to without an explicit role for a pivotal individual who has... Um, kind of the way we model it is they have they have better information about how the world is working and are able to try to convey this information to the members. Uh, and once that problem is solved, then the leader is in a position to continue to make demands on the members. But it's that kind of initial need. And in terms of the community of faith thing, um, we say you know some leaders become leaders for a variety of different reasons. Being a leader is not easy. Not everybody wants to do it. Um, and the people that do choose to undertake to try to lead organizations typically have other goals beyond just, you know, uh, being a leader. They have things they want for themselves, and those things could be just money and perks, or they could have uh, political or social or other objectives, and the organization provides a platform for them to try to do that as well. And it's those preferences that we think are, are really important, and the people that want to um, have these other broader social goals are the ones we focus on as, as trying to um, expand the scope of action of their organizations. Um, and the, the kind of second role we mentioned, the, the kind of the steps, the key thing for us in the book is that uh, members, even if they don't care about politics, uh, will be willing to go along with the leader if the leader is, in fact, delivering the goods. Um, but they're going to need... Uh, guarantees and ways in which they can both monitor what the leader is up to and, and monitor what their fellow unionists are up to uh, and also uh, punish the leader in some sense if he goes too far. And those are the organizational uh, rules and institutions that we focus on in a lot of the book uh, historically. There's another piece to those organizational rules and institutions which is crucial to this process of, of convincing people that they want to act beyond their, are willing to act beyond their self-interest. And one set of, of arrangements uh, really has to do with providing education and knowledge um, about what's happening in the world and about what you can do about what's happening in the world. The other very important piece of it is that these are rank-and-file democracies where this occurs which gives the members a capacity not only to hold the rulers accountable, the rulers, the leaders accountable, um, but also to challenge the kind of information that they're getting and to vote on it, um, to make a decision that's an aggregate decision and the leaders could lose. Now, now you, you, you do much of this in the context of, of four different unions. Mm -hmm. um, why these four? Um, and, and what makes them each different from the others? What's the what's your choice of case all about? Well, all four of the unions 
are in the transport sector. And the importance of that is that they all have the capacity, should they choose to use it, um, to have some influence. They can act on their their, uh, they can act to, to close the ports or to close the roads if they uh, want to make a stand about an important political issue. And people will at least hear them. They may not change uh, the policies, but they have some capacity to at least uh, do something um, to act on, on what they think is important. Right. And so that makes these, these unions all very interesting, but then they're all very different from each other. Two of them are quite similar, though, in different countries and within different uh, national legal frameworks and with different ethnic compositions, but act the same way and are both uh, longshore workers unions, the Maritime Union of Australia, the Waterside Workers Federation, and the ILWU, the Longshore Workers Association, Longshore and Warehouse Workers Association. And the other two, um, the Teamsters, are very good at delivering the goods to their members. They're excellent at that. But for most of, the, but they've never been interested, even in the contemporary period, in um, getting membership to do anything other than what it makes sense to do from a very narrow economic interest in terms of protecting wages, welfare, benefits, hours, etc. And the fourth union, um, that's the on the waterfront union. Um, those who've watched that film with Marlon Brando, mm-hmm. um, and that's the corrupt union which in principle has all these capacities but has neither a leadership that is interested in delivering to the members, though it makes money for itself, um, nor is it an, a union, even though it's had moments in the past when parts of it have been this way, it's not a union that's interested in um, thinking about larger social and political issues. So just a couple of quick things to add um, in terms of case selection and then one other. Uh, we also were wanted to make sure that we had unions that were existing in democratic capitalist societies um, with free and fair elections and things of that sort. So we're not looking at, um, you know, unions in the apartheid era of South Africa or something like that. Um, And the other quick thing to note is kind of why unions, leaving aside these unions. And that was a conscious choice for several reasons as well. Um, I mean, we both uh, have interest in unions as interesting objects of study in their own right, and that's definitely part of it. But what makes them particularly useful for our purposes here is that, uh, you know, they're kind of like mini governments as opposed to a firm. You know, they have um, this kind of conflict between uh, responsiveness and representation and accountability internally with being in a very stark, uh, potentially conflictual external relationship with employers, with governments, with other unions um, that makes them look like little governments in some ways. Uh, and they can be organized in those ways. Um, and they have these, uh, the thing that's great about them in the, in the countries we study is that it lets us um, get around issues of selection and screening that you might worry about if you were to, say, study uh, religious congregations or something like that. Uh, the unions, you know, the members end up in these unions basically because of the time and place where they are, and that's the job that was available for um mainly men in this period, who were in, in physical labor. Um, so, we're, again, we're talking Teamsters and dock workers. Um, and so we, we can get around the, the kind of, I'm going to choose the organization that already reflects my pre-existing interests. That's not really happening in, in these cases. 
the other uh, part of this choice involves the union's incentive to not screen people out that don't fit what they want them to be already. So in order to be a successful industrial union, which all of these organizations uh, are or, or think they might be in the case of the ILA, uh, they cannot really afford to screen people out for political or social preferences. They need to organize as many workers as they can in these industries if they're going to be strong and effective unions at all. And so these attributes make them particularly useful for us from a research design perspective to get at the, uh, not, that, not that screening and selection don't go on, they do, and not that they can't be very important, but it lets us um, uh, avoid those issues in this particular study. Yeah, yeah and, and, and as you just sort of are describing, people join these unions primarily for non-political reasons, um, but your theoretical work and your analysis uh, seeks out how the unions transform those beliefs. So how does this actually work? What, what can union leaders do to get the rank-and-file members to believe the interests of those outside the union matter or the issues outside, the immediate issues of, of the, the labor contract uh, matter? What's in a, in a practical sense, what are, what are the union leaders during the time you study doing and how are they interacting to change these attitudes? Well, there's a huge investment by the unions that succeed in doing this in various forms of education and knowledge production among the members. So they, they have union newspapers that have columns that talk not just about the latest contract negotiation, but also the latest um, international and national events that uh, are of interest. They have education departments, um, and people get training not only, again, in contract negotiation and bargaining, but also in um, other kinds of things that they might be interested. They've all had workers' histories. They put a lot of investment in telling people about the history of the union um, and in, in informing them about contemporary politics and, and affairs. The informational story is, is absolutely critical, but I think the key thing that differentiates uh, the Waterside Workers or the ILWU from the Teamsters of the ILA is that they have leadership cohorts that actively ask the members absolutely. to get involved. That's the first key thing, is that you have to ask somebody um, to, to get involved. That's the first uh, mechanism. And then the key thing for us in the context of the model and in the book is you ask, you're asking them in a context. And not only does that context involve the information that Margaret was talking about, but it involves the pre-existing credibility that these leaders have established by being successful at getting good contracts. And it also involves asking in the context of organizational rules that um, make sure the members know that if the leader asks for too much or proves to be inadequate, that they can be replaced or otherwise punished. So what would be an, an example um, that of, of a successful effort to um, mobilize union members to think beyond the union? Um, is, there, is there a case that stands out to you as just very illustrative of this? Well, one of our favorite stories that we both tell is when we were interviewing some of the pensioners, old-timers of the Waterside Workers Federation in Sydney, one guy followed us out and he said, I never got that communism stuff and socialism stuff that some of the leadership were talking about. But when we were having lunch one day at, in the docks, having a stop work meeting, which is what they call it, and 
the leadership came and some of the other members started talking to us about the ships that had just pulled up to the docks that were from the Netherlands, and they were going to go um, deliver war material to fight the rebels in Indonesia. And he said, that's not fair dinkum. That's just not acceptable. And then they said, well, if you feel that way, we can do something. We can not load the ships. And so they mobilized and didn't load the ships, and, and they um, refused to do it throughout the whole most of the most of the um, Indonesian rebellion. And I mean, in the book, there's there's many many examples. That you know, part of the puzzle with these unions isn't just single one-off events like the one Margaret just described, but it's they've been able to maintain uh, activities like the one Margaret described repeatedly over many decades and over many different leadership cohorts. And many different cohorts of workers. Right. Um, and so, you know, and technological changes right, right. and legal changes. Um, so there's examples of the union leadership again in Sydney um, demanding that the workers stop work and march, or not demanding, asking the workers to to stop work and march in defense of some journalists and politicians that had been imprisoned at the time under an anti-communist act in Sydney that basically made it a, a crime on some level to be a communist. And they did. It caused some, some ruckus within the union, but the, they did. Um, in the United States, there are several examples of the ILWU um, asking workers to stop work, to, to basically go on strike, or to refuse to load certain ships because uh, they were Chilean ships after the Allende crew in Chile. Uh, they refused to load uh, cargo going to El Salvador in the 1980s. Um, because of the, the Civil War and the U.S. involvement and the behavior of the government forces in El Salvador. Um, they refused, they, the, the whole union stopped work on the West Coast to protest the Iraq War a couple of years ago on May Day. And, and in favor of abortion rights. Right. That's another one. So there, there's many, many examples like this. Um, and, you know, these aren't uh, necessarily going to the wall on all these issues, but they aren't free either. They're asking the members to give something up, whether it's um, a shift of work and wages, um, it's taking a risk in the sense of sometimes there may be um, police or other presidents that can put you in some sort of uh, disadvantageous position. So um, these are all costly actions that um, uh, require mass participation by the membership and require their consent and typically prior assent, and they're getting it even though these things have nothing to do with why these guys are in the unions or... Or their any, wages, or the, hours, yeah. working conditions. We're not so much, you know, we are, but in this book we're not interested in, in mobilizing around wage strikes because that's relatively easy to explain. We're more interested in mobilizing around issues that have nothing to do with their immediate economic interests as we can observe them as outsiders. So how replicable are these findings to, to either other unions, uh, which it sounds like uh, the findings are, or to other member-based associations? How, how far can we take some of the uh, findings and lessons from your book to, to other settings? Uh, we're still exploring that. I think that we can. Um, I, you know, I think, I think the, the major area that I'm interested in exploring is how it translates to government uh, behavior, which has... Uh, a lot of similarities in sort of organizational structure. The dues paying is similar to tax paying. There's largely no self-selection into where you happen to be born, but there's a little bit of selection having to do with immigration rules, etc. But the big thing here is, you know, do we have 
leadership and organizational arrangements that work to elicit from people um, an understanding that they're part of a larger community and, and their fates are intertwined, or do we have leadership and organizational arrangements that um, encourage individualism? And I think there's variation in the world on that, and there's variation over time, and I, so I think the concepts that we're developing here are, in fact, translatable into understanding something very critical about government and citizenship behavior, which has been the, the issues that have driven my research virtually my whole life. I mean, I would uh, add to that. I don't necessarily think these findings, what were sought in these unions, are replicable and duplicable you know, sui generis in some other organization in the same way you can't just replace a, a form of government with a democracy right away and copy one constitution in another place and expect that to work. What I think we have shown in this on one level is a demonstration of possibility in existence, that these types of things can happen, they do happen, and it's not, you know, necessarily a, a one-off thing. It, it can be sustained for, for a long time. Uh, we've also been able to demonstrate the conditions and the scope conditions and restrictions that you might pay attention to in these other things. So in the example of a nation state, um, the cost of exit, you know, can be quite high. And this is, I think our book actually echoes very nicely with like Exit Voice and Loyalty by Albert Hirschman. That when do you have the incentive and the ability to be loyal and to have a voice in your organization is when it is more difficult for you to leave. So in organizations where it's very easy to shift in and out and just, if you don't like it, you just drop and go somewhere else, you know, it's going to be more difficult for the types of processes we're describing to take hold and to, to possibly happen. Um, if you're in a situation where the, uh, the extent to which the leadership cohort actually needs the consent and participation of the members, if uh, that is not that necessary, then you're not going to see this kind of thing happening. Um, so, you know, I think we're able to make broader statements in that vein more than say, you know, if only the Teamsters had done something else, then it would look like the ILWU. I, I don't think that's the direction we expected it to go, and I don't think that's the direction we would want it to go. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed the book, and, and I, I enjoyed, I, I have sort of a uh, side interest in book covers, and, and you guys have one of the uh, better book covers. I'm not, I didn't see where the, uh, the image is, but uh, for those uh, listening who are interested, I, I would encourage you to, to go out and, and read the book. It's a beautiful mural from the Rincon Center in San Francisco, California, that actually depicts the 1934 Longshore Strike, and we were very happy that Princeton Press was able to get permission to use it on the cover. Yeah, they, they, they are doing great things with their covers these days. It's, uh, I don't, I'm not quite sure. We'll have to talk to them about, about who's in charge of that, but this at least goes on my top ten for uh, book covers of the year. It's also a great read.